you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim, they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. with you this morning, a cracker of a passage we have before us. My name's Andy Judd. I teach Old Testament at Ridley College, and and I have the great privilege of being invited here today uh, to open God's Word with you, with us this morning as we dive into it. Special hello if you're joining us online. Always great uh, to have you and to be joined together as we read the Bible together. Special big shout out to my wife, Steph, uh, who's freeing me up to preach right now. Uh, We've only lost one child this morning um, so far, but we got him back, so that's good. So thank you for uh, doing that wherever you are. Um, Leadership. Today's about leadership. One of the greatest leaders of all time, when I think of great leaders, uh, you might have your favorite. I think of this guy, Alexander of Macedon. Alexander of Macedon, I used to call him um, Alexander of Greece, but then a Macedonian corrected me on that. He's Alexander of Macedon, also known as Alexander the Great. If you've ever Googled, looked on Google Maps for all the Alexandrias in the world, uh, there's dozens of them scattered around the world. And the reason is because of this guy. Uh, he came to power uh, at age 20, inherited the throne from his father, the throne of the kingdom of Macedon. And he said about pretty much single-handedly expanding that empire far beyond what it had been. And by age 30, he had succeeded in so many battles, so many campaigns, that he'd succeeded in building the largest empire the world had ever seen and one of the largest empires that the world ever would see. He controlled territory. Just get this in your mind for a second. He controlled territory ranging from Greece to India. 
Right? He got control. He took on the world. It's often this quote which goes around on, on inspiring quotes. Alexander saw the breadth of his empire, the domain that he had conquered, and he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Ever heard that quote? It's actually not from him. It's from uh, the movie Die Hard. Um, <laughs> Alan Rickman's not quite the same, but the point is he had a huge empire. He was a hugely successful leader. Imagine taking on the world by age 30, and yet then something happened. He was widely regarded as the greatest military leader ever. He took on Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. He took down the Persian Empire, which is why they don't call him Alexander the Great. They have another name for him. Uh, he's the reason why Greek culture and Greek language, he's the reason why most of the New Testament is written in Greek. He had a huge influence, and yet then something happened. Do you know what that was? Well, he got sick. Age 32, he got sick. Uh, maybe it was a fever. Another report is that he uh, had a night with a little bit too much wine and, and never recovered. But either way, on his deathbed, he had no plan for succession. Like, Who, who's going to take on this massive kingdom? And, and the answer was there's no clear successor because he's 32. He's not writing a will. And as a result, because of that failure of succession... What happened to the empire that he had established was it quickly got torn apart by rivalries between uh, other potential successors to him. And so uh, this is used as a case study, isn't it, in, in so many leadership training manuals and books of how the mighty fall for a failure of succession. Uh, Jim Collins, one of the kind of great business writers of the previous generation, describes how in, in cases of terminal decline, there's rarely a sense of who's going to take on the reins, rarely clarity about how to pass things on. There's a failure of handover to the next generation. It's not enough to build a world-crushing empire. You have to know who you're going to pass it on to. The real challenge is to find succession. And this is a principle we see in the Bible and we see in this passage today because good leaders are rare and even they die. Right? The principle we see time and time again in the Bible, good leaders are rare and the good ones die, which leads us with this continual question of who's going to lead. Right? We've seen one of the greatest leaders of the Bible, one of the greatest leaders of history, Moses, bring the people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them to within spitting distance of the promised land. But like all good leaders, eventually he dies. So who is going to take it forward? And that's what today's passage is about. It's about the next generation. Israel would have died. Uh, the idea of Israel would have ended in the desert if Moses had not been able to pass on to the next generation. And that's what this is about. So the book of Joshua uh, answers this question uh, for some context. Will God keep his promises to Abraham? Now, that's what we're tracking with this whole series. Will God keep his promises to Abraham? Specifically, his, problem, his um, promise of uh, his presence with his people, of uh, a nation that will be great, and of blessing uh, in the land, right? This particular promise of land. Will God keep his promise to Abraham of giving them this land of Canaan? Against all the odds, basically, because this is a ragtag bunch of slaves who've just run away from Egypt with nothing more than what they could grab on the way out from their former enslavers. Will they be able to take hold of the land of Canaan? By the end of the book, by the end of the series, we'll know the answer to that question. The book works in about four 
uh, parts. People normally divide it up into four parts. This week we are at the end of that first part, which is all about how God's people get up to the edge of the promised land. So no battles today, but a crossing over into the next section. And the next section from chapter 6 to 12 is where all the action and walls falling down and decisive battles will be. So stay tuned for that. That'll determine the outcome. Right now, though, as they come from the wilderness to the promised land in front of them, there's something in the way. And that something is the River Jordan. To successfully cross over and take possession of what God has promised, they need to cross into enemy territory across the River Jordan. And to do that, as we're going to see today, they need two things. Two things. They need leadership and they need preparation. So let's have a look at the passage under those headings. Firstly, leadership. Moses, as I mentioned, had led them out of slavery uh, in Egypt to the doorstep of the promised land. But then he's died back in Deuteronomy 34. So Joshua inherits the job. He's the successor that Moses has named. What does his first couple of days in the office look like? Well, here's what he sets about doing. Firstly, to start with, you may remember he sent some spies into the land. We saw that uh, back in the last couple of weeks. He spent some spies into the land to see what it's like. Now, this may remind us, if we read the book of Exodus and Numbers, remind us of the story of Moses sending spies, including Joshua and Caleb, into the promised land. So here he has kind of repeating some of the great acts of his former boss, Moses. Then in chapter uh, chapter 3 of the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua makes his next big leadership move. We've had this read in the passage today. Probably helpful to have a map up while we look at this. I like maps. The Israelites are led by Joshua, and they're on the uh, east of the Jordan River. As I mentioned, there's uh, kind of wilderness behind them, wilderness and a a history of slavery behind them. And then in front of them is the promised land, right, as they move westward across. But in the way is this Jordan River. Now, uh, it doesn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to where they are now to be clear, right? There's been a bit of a detour along the way. Uh, And if you go back and read that story, it's because that first generation out got to this point and then let fear stand in the way of them entering in. They've been here before, almost exactly. And yet that time, the spies went in and and, and they reported back and people were like, gosh, the people in that land, I don't think they're going to let us come in and just take it. They look pretty scary. And so because of their fear... They turned back and they disobeyed and and God sent them wandering around the desert for 40 years until another generation could have another go. So see how this is a crucial generational moment. Are we going to let fear or faith drive us? Will we cross over and inherit the promises or will we refuse to believe God and go back and spend another 40 years in the desert? So that generation is dead, and this generation has to decide, will they trust God's word? And look, this is pertinent for all of us, right? Because every generation has to make this call. Will we trust God's promises? Now, maybe you come from a long line of generations who have trusted God's promises. Praise God for that. Praise God for that heritage that they have passed down to you. But... Every generation has to decide for themselves, are they going to walk in that faith? Maybe you come from a Christian family with Christian parents. You need to make your own decision. There's no fence to sit on. They can't just swim in the Jordan River forever. Will they cross over? Will you take possession of God's promises? Will you make a choice? Because the choice for God doesn't happen by default or by tradition. It is a daily choice every generation must make consciously and deliberately and in a costly way. So for the Israelites, this is the point of no return, right? 
This is the point of no return. They're on the edge of enemy territory. Right? Once they go across here, there is nothing but slavery and wilderness behind them and nothing but promise in front of them. Nothing but the word of God and a bunch of fairly scary looking Canaanites in front of them. What are they going to do? Now they can see their first glimpse of the promised land. On the other side of the river, there's the uh, city of Jericho on the hills, just, well, just on the plains before the hills, actually. We've probably got a picture of it here. We're going to hear a lot more about uh, Jericho in future weeks. But just for now, it's worth knowing the other name for Jericho is the city of palms because it's literally an oasis. Can you imagine spending 40 years wandering in the desert and then seeing, seeing this oasis in front of you? All of God's promises. Uh, it's, it's even got its own spring feeding it water. Well, what's the plan? What's this leader Joshua going to do to get them there? Well, the plan is do what God tells us to do. Simple. The plan is let's do what God tells us to do. Joshua has a direct line with God. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7, we heard the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. See the continuity there. Just as Moses relayed the instructions from God, so Joshua is going to listen to God. And that is going to be his leadership uh, style. Joshua instructs them to follow the ark through the Jordan River across to the plains of Jericho on the other side. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. <coughs> Important, pardon me, detail that we could miss here. The whole army, 40,000 men or so, is about to go into hostile territory What's the secret? What's the military secret? What's the strategy? What's the piece of military hardware that they're putting their hopes in? It's a box. It's a box. Actually, it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. They built it in the desert uh, as they were instructed to by the Lord to facilitate God's presence in their midst. That's why Joshua tells them not to go too close. Stay about a kilometer away from it if you know what's good for you because God's presence is dangerous. It's good, but it's dangerous. And who is going to lead this crucial military piece of infrastructure into the, into the battle? A bunch of priests. I don't know who you choose to go into battle behind. A bunch of priests, Levitical priests. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan water overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. Right, so there's a lot of water going on. The waters coming down from above stood and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. In other words, it's an unseasonable kind of uh, low tide that enables them to walk through. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, which doesn't happen, but it did happen. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So the waters pile up on either side and they pass through on dry ground. This kind of water passing thing, dry ground, Israel being led by God's presence. We studied the book of Exodus a while back. If you were here, this might be ringing some bells. Again, what's Moses' most famous thing? Parting of the Red Sea. So here we have Joshua repeating this same sign. 
leading God's people through uh, not the Red Sea, but the, um, the Jordan River, just as they escaped from Egypt. Well, they come through, and they um, come to uh, probably somewhere near this place, uh, at Gilgal, which is just to the east of Jericho. And there they put down 12 stones so that when their kids ask them, hey, what happened here? They can tell them. They can remind them. And they said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. And so, again, if we remember the uh, Exodus story, the Passover, that crucial moment in the story uh, when the child in the family asks, hey, what's the meaning of this bread? Well, son, well, daughter, I'll tell you. All right, we have, again, it's just dripping in this Exodus language and ideas. Even at the end of this section, uh, he meets the commander of the Lord's army who tells him, take off your sandals because this ground is holy land. Uh, hol- uh, is, um, uh, the, land where you, the place where you're standing is holy, holy ground. Again, that's exactly what happened to Moses. Point being, Joshua is like the new Moses. Point being, we have a succession plan. Just as God was with Moses, so he's with Joshua. So the people need to get on board with Joshua. They need to follow his leadership. They need to obey his instructions. It makes me think a little bit about our need for human leaders. Because good leaders are hard to find. And I think uh, we are going through a patch, a rough patch with the idea of leadership in our culture at the moment. And and we have a lot of um, constant stories in the media and social media and our own experience about leaders failing. And so if you're like me and you have an independent streak, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Hey, we don't need leaders. I can just self-govern. I can do my own thing. And we're suspicious of our leaders, maybe with some reason, And so we think we can do without. It raises the question, who do we follow? Who do we follow as a church? How do we see our leaders in the church? Because the experience of Israel wandering the desert tells us that good leaders are hard to find. They're mostly bad. The good ones are hard to find. And even the good ones let you down by dying. So what are we going to do with that? We see politicians, we see business, we see church. It's easy to get cynical about our human leaders. But what does the Bible have for us on this point? Well, actually, I think it's really important and really helpful and really life-giving because the Bible teaches us some good news. Firstly, our ultimate leader is Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, Peter picks up on this idea of the succession plan of Joshua and points to the new Joshua who is the leader of God's people in the church. And who is this new Joshua? Well, literally, his name is Joshua because Jesus is the Greek version sort of of Joshua. So you don't have to be, you, know, you don't have to kind of look far from that land. Who is the new Joshua? It's Jesus. Jesus is our leader. He's ultimately our chief shepherd, the one who cares for us like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Our chief shepherd is Jesus. But what we also learn from the Bible is that he uses, he chooses to use frail, imperfect, weak humans like you and me in order to lead the church. And this bit is maybe that as independent-minded people we struggle with the most. But we need to pray for good human leaders, not people chosen for their world-shattering military prowess or strategic thinking, although those things might be good, the strategic thing, not the military thing. Um, We do need to pray for good leaders, but leaders primarily who will listen to the voice of God. We want leaders who will be Bible-open leaders. And that's what I love. I mean, I, I love how we are served 
right, by our leadership here, by our, our um, church council, by our wardens, by our um, staff, particularly by our senior pastor, Guy, by, by Steph and the rest of them. I'm only married to one of them, right? So I'm fairly objective, all right? And I thank God for them. And we should thank God for them. We should also pray for them because they're humans and it's a hard job and they need our help in our prayers. They need our prayers more than anything. And I'm grateful for them, not just because they're talented, no, I think they are, but also because they're Bible-open leaders. They're people of character and dependence on God who serve humbly, courageously, and sacrificially, and that's the kind of leaders we need to be looking for. Speaking of Bible-open, let's get back to the text. Key to the Israelites' success in the coming pages of Joshua will be their ability to prepare. So that's the second point I want to talk about, preparation. It was a Super Bowl this week, according to my social media feeds. Uh, one of the greatest American football coaches of all time is a man called Paul Bear Bryant. And he has this quote. I think it's true. It's not the will to, matter, uh, the will to win that matters. Everyone has that. It's the will to prepare to win that matters. If American football isn't your thing, then there's dozens of other people who've said the same thing, from Winston Churchill to Benjamin Franklin. Anyway, it's not enough to want to win. You have to put in the hard yards to prepare. So what are the Israelites going to do to prepare to win the battle? Keep in mind that this is a tiny nation of escaped slaves, right? They've been wandering around in the desert ever since. This is one of the greatest, and that's going to a land which has literally some giants in it. Okay, so what are they going to do to prepare to win in this kind of the greatest underdog battle story of all time? A military boot camp, perhaps? Extensive hand-to-hand combat drills? Will there be a montage, like in Rocky? What are they going to do? Well, no, the secret to their preparation are two things. A minor surgery and a major meal. Let's have a look. First is the minor surgery, chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'olot. And the name of this campsite, Gibeath Ha'olot, means the hill of foreskins. Right? That's the place where they're at. A great place for a family holiday if you're looking for a campsite in the West Bank of Israel anytime soon. Now, a couple of questions. I've got a few questions about this, which um, you might as well. Firstly, why are they getting circumcised a second time? Surely once is enough. Um, Some context is helpful here. Firstly, circumcision uh, is a thing that was um, widely practiced in the ancient world, but has particular meaning for the Israelite people. Because back in Genesis 17, when God was confirming these promises to Abraham, including the promise of land, he gave them this sign that the males would be circumcised. And it was basically a way of saying, despite all the rubbish going on in the world, the constant death and sin, God is committing to the genealogy. He's committing to the line of promise, that life and promise will continue despite sin and death. So by uh, being circumcised, the men of the community are saying, no, we are on board with this promise and we are in faith proceeding in the assumption that we are going to receive this promise, even if it's long after our death. Abraham never saw the promised land after all. So the nation is being circumcised again. Why again? Well, it's not the same people. That's the point. Right? Because the people who were originally came out of Egypt, they were circumcised. They were part of that. But they've died in the desert. Remember, they didn't want to go in. They let fear get in the way. And so now the next generation is choosing. Are you on board with that sign? 
Are you on board with those promises, as every generation must choose? So it's about getting on board. It's about obeying God, taking their place in the line of succession. Now, the key to preparation is not military strategy. In this case, it's obedience and trust. It's a reset. And it's a belief in God's promises. And that leads us to the second the second issue, which is the separate, second type of preparation, which is the major meal. So we've had the minor surgery here and the major meal. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Now again, this Passover looks backwards. Right? It looks backwards to the, uh, the exodus from Egypt. Right? The night before they get out of there, they uh, have this um, procedure they're, go- they're, they're to go through, this meal which is a sign and an ongoing reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises in Egypt. It remembers God's salvation, essentially. It remembers that God saved them and brought them out of Egypt. An African bishop I once met uh, tells me that we move forward, who's a great visionary leader, we move forward only by looking backwards. What did he mean? So we we move forward into the future by remembering what God has done in the past. Because that's the only way we can have confidence that God is going to deliver us these promises. Because we know what he's like. Think about someone you trust. Someone you trust with your life. I hope there's at least someone in your life you trust. Maybe it's a friend, a family member. You trust them because of your history, don't you? You didn't just like see them one day and think, that looks like a trustworthy person. I hope you didn't. I hope you have history with them. And your trust is well-placed because you know what they're like. And it's the same with God. We move forward in trust because we know what he's done. We know the story. And that's why the major meal, the Passover, is so important preparation. Because it's reminding them of what God has done for them in the past. And that he has never let down. He has never let them down. He has never failed in his promises and he won't start with you. So for the Israelites, this meant remembering the exodus for us, it means remembering that, but actually also the greater salvation that we've seen in Jesus, doesn't it? When we share in the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus came to earth and gave himself for us to free us from slavery, not to Pharaoh, to sin. And so we proceed as Christians looking back to that earth-shattering event when God kept his promise. I love this way of remembering that is built into the Bible. And I love the way that we have these prompts and these ideas for ways that we can remind ourselves and the next generation, any little people that we are in the lives of, we can remind them of who God is. In the Passover, it was the job of one of the kids to ask, as I mentioned, why do we do this thing every year? And it was the job of the parents to explain the story. They've been doing that for thousands of years ever since. And so we as Christians also continue to tell the story of what God has done. I love the traditions which I see parents in our community building into their families. So their kids can ask, Mom, why do we go to church every Sunday? Dad, why do we share the Lord's Supper together? Why do you pray with us and for us before bed? I've learned so much asking parents who have older kids than mine how you do this. And if you, whether you have kids or not, if you have people in your life that you are discipling, remember these moments of story that God has given us to remind ourselves and teach others about God's faithfulness. We move forward by looking backwards at God's promises. 
The other thing I want to mention at this point in this call to obedience for the Israelites, it foreshadows a really, really important principle. And that principle is they only get to stay in the land if they obey God. You obey, you get to stay. It's a clear principle, and it's really important as we wrestle with some of the hairier elements of this story. Right? The fact that they're going into land where there are other people living already. That God has decided in his providence that these people uh, will have to leave. Many of them will be killed in that process. Right? It's hard for me to imagine. I've never been to a war zone. I don't live in this part of the world. Most humans who've ever lived would understand this much more than I do. They would understand what it's like to live in a time of constant tribal warfare where uh, sons and fathers would constantly have to put down their tools and go out and fight for the survival of their tribe, of their clan, of their community. I don't know, that, I don't know what that's like. And so when I read about this war, I find it confronting in a visceral way. And I, I, I think, and maybe you're like me, you think, well, what is God doing involved in this? Showing, you know, taking sides. Right? Allowing the Israelites to have victory and the Canaanites not. Now, some important things that we need to know here, and I'm just not going to make that feeling go away, and it's fine for us to feel that and wrestle with that and ask, hey, God, I know you're against death. Right? We know that from the start. Right? When the Lord saw the violence that had come onto the earth before the flood and Noah and all that, it grieved him. And for a terrifying moment, he regretted making the world. So we know that God is the God of life, not death. So what's he doing here getting involved in the world that has become consumed by violence and death? Why is he doing that? Well, it's really helpful to understand a few things. And one of them is that this is not a wholesale permission for the Israelites just to kill anyone they want. This is a particular moment against particular people who are being deprived of the land, seven named nations. And those nations actually descend from the same family as the Israelites. Do you know that? So after Noah and the flood, Noah has three sons. He has um, two of them, uh, Shem and Ham. The people currently in the land are descended from Ham. Right? He's the father of Canaan. The Israelites descend from Shem. God's hope And God's commission was for them to have life and blessing after the flood. But here, God has actually seen that the Canaanites have chosen to walk away from God. And we had that foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. When Abraham was promised this land, God said, you're going to have that land, but not yet. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites, another name for these people, has not yet reached its fullness. In other words... They've walked away from God, they have disobeyed God, and so they don't get to stay. The same principle will apply to Israel when ultimately they disobey and they don't get to stay. But at this particular moment, what's really important is Israel doesn't learn the habits from their cousins. It's really important that Israel doesn't pick up those Canaanite worship practices because ultimately the promise to Israel and to Abraham was not just for them, it was for the whole world. Through them, the whole world would be brought back to worship. So if they become like their cousins, the Canaanites, then the whole plan is ruined. And we wouldn't be standing here worshipping God through Jesus. So at this point, it is imperative that they separate themselves from the people in the land. It's imperative that they obey. We might still wrestle with the idea that God 
gets his hands dirty, gets involved in this kind of conflict. But a part of me is also glad that he didn't give up on us, that he actually didn't walk away from the violence, that he actually had a plan to work through this world to bring the world back to life and to blessing. Stay tuned. That's a longer story. For now, it's just important for us to note that the Israelites are being called to obedience. Their prime preparation is that they obey God. Because God's not a genie that they can just pull out and win at battle. All right? It's not a, a missile they can just set off and, and have victory. Right? In fact, shortly after this, uh, Joshua bumps into the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. And he says, hey, are you working for them or us? And the angel says, uh, neither. <laughs> All right? I work for God. And the question is not, is God on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? And that's why the best preparation they can have is obedience. For now, we uh, leave things on a moment of optimism. We know the ending, don't we, for this story. We know, I mean, spoiler, we know that. We know that Israel will survive, but they don't. So just try to imagine what it's like standing on the edge of that land, a land of giants, armed with nothing but a promise, but with nowhere to run except wilderness and slavery behind you. It'd be a struggle to believe God's word at that point, wouldn't it? We know the generation before failed at this point, didn't believe, didn't walk in. And so maybe we can empathize a little bit. We have a vision of a promised land ahead of us as Christians, which sometimes can be hard to see and touch and feel, kind of, because the world we live in is not the way it should be. We don't see God's rule here on earth the way we might like. We have anxiety about the future. We see war across the world. We have anxiety about the environment, about the next generation, about politics and interest rates and everything. Do we believe in the promises of God at this point? Do we proceed in faith or let fear turn us away? The current world we're in is not the way it should be, and our hope is not in the promise of a politician or a military strategy. Our hope is in the word of God, just like theirs was. And the best preparation we can have is obedience and remembering those promises. And God has appointed us another Joshua, hasn't he? Jesus, who leads us into the kingdom, into the promised land. And the question for us is, do we trust him to do that? Do you trust Jesus to do that? Do you trust Jesus to lead you through whatever it is in your future that you see, whatever you're afraid of, to lead you into the promised land? We're not, by the way, looking to go back to Jerusalem and join the kingdom of God there. The, the vision now is even bigger. It's a whole world transformed where the knowledge of God will fill the world like the water fills the sea. What a vision. Do you trust Jesus to lead you there? Do you trust Jesus to lead you into eternal life with him in this world? Lots of leaders talk a big talk. They say they care about you. But I'm willing to bet none of them have died for you. Whatever we think of Jesus, we need to start with that. He is so powerful, and yet he chose to humble himself and die for you. And even when we have questions about him, even when we don't understand what he's doing in the world, you know he's good. 
You know he loves you. So will you trust him to lead you across? I want to pray for us now that we do that as the band gets up. Oh, Heavenly Father, we advance in confidence in you because we know that you are good and in your son, Jesus, you have shown us that you love us to death. So we pray that you would help us to look ahead and bank on these promises with certainty, with the certainty that comes from looking backwards to what you have done in the past. We pray that we would be a Bible-opened church where our leaders at every level are opening your word and are listening to your voice. We pray uh, that you would help and empower us to trust you in this world. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.